This is an audio version of an excerpt from a tour of emerging cryptographic technologies, What They Are and How They Could Matter, published in May 2021 by Ben Garfinkel, Center for the Governance of AI, Future of Humanity Institute, University of Oxford. This is the excerpt included in the AI Safety Fundamentals core curriculum. I'll also read the abstract. Abstract. Historically, progress in the field of cryptography has been enormously consequential. Over the past century, for instance, cryptographic discoveries have played a key role in a world war and made it possible to use the internet for business and private communication. In the interest of exploring the impact the field may have in the future, I consider a suite of more recent developments. My primary focus is on blockchain-based technologies, such as cryptocurrencies, and on techniques for computing on confidential data, such as secure multi-party computation. I provide an introduction to these technologies that assumes no mathematical background or previous knowledge of cryptography. Then, I consider several speculative predictions that some researchers and engineers have made about the technology's long-term political significance. This includes predictions that more privacy-preserving, in quotes, forms of surveillance will become possible, that the roles of centralised institutions ranging from banks to voting authorities will shrink, and that new transnational institutions known as decentralised autonomous organisations will emerge. Finally, I close by discussing some challenges that are likely to limit the significance of emerging cryptographic technologies. On the basis of these challenges, it is premature to predict that any of them will approach the transformativeness of previous technologies. However, this remains a rapidly developing area well worth following. Audio note, we now skip to section 2, titled Cryptographic Technologies, Definitions, Explanations and Examples. The set of cryptographic technologies that we will be considering is highly diverse. Of interest in this report will be public key cryptography, digital signatures, cryptographic hash functions, trusted timestamping, tamper-evident logs, blockchains, cryptocurrencies, zero-knowledge proofs, smart property, smart contracts, homomorphic encryption, functional encryption, and secure multi-party computation and secret sharing. Some of these technologies are new, having been developed primarily in just the last 15 years. Some are older, but either serve as core components of these newer technologies or continue to find additional applications of their own. In this section, I aim to provide descriptions of each technology that are sufficient to enable informed discussions of their potential applications and limitations. For an overview, Tables 1 and 2 provide a highly abridged summary. In addition, for a deeper look, I will now also recommend some sources for further reading. Readers interested in more thorough or technical descriptions of well-established technologies, like public key encryption, digital signatures, and cryptographic hash functions, can find them in any number of widely used introductory textbooks, such as Introduction to Modern Cryptography, by Jonathan Katz and Yehuda Lindel. Readers interested in blockchains, cryptocurrencies, smart property, and smart contracts can find discussions of them in the textbook Bitcoin and Cryptocurrency Technologies, by Narayanan et al., Vitalik Buterin's white paper for the Ethereum blockchain and Ethan Buckman's thesis outlining the Tendermint blockchain also continue to serve as good introductions to blockchain technology itself. Many of Vitalik Buterin's blog posts also provide unusually clear-headed descriptions of different aspects of blockchain ecosystem. Zero-knowledge proofs and secure multi-party computation receive coverage in many intermediate cryptography textbooks. There are a handful of book-length treatments. For an introduction to zero-knowledge proofs that focuses on recent developments, I recommend the Explaining Snarks series on the Zcash blog. That's S-N-A-R-K, Snark. 
For an accessible introduction to secure multi-party computation, I recommend the paper Secure Multi-Party Computation for Privacy-Preserving Data Mining by Lindell and Pincus. In addition, Vaikun Tanatan's Computing Blindfolded, New Developments in Fully Homomorphic Encryption, and Bonner et al.'s Functional Encryption, Definitions and Challenges, are reasonable introductions to homomorphic encryption and functional encryption, respectively. Finally, it is important to note that the list of technologies I have chosen to investigate is not exhaustive. Among areas I have excluded, the most important may be the subfield of quantum cryptography, which applies quantum phenomena to cryptographic tasks. This exclusion is primarily a matter of limited space, although it is also worth noting that many of the most interesting technologies associated with quantum cryptography, such as quantum money and quantum copy protection, stand out as particularly far from seeing practical applications. Other potentially significant technologies not discussed in this report include program obfuscation and verifiable computing. Program obfuscation allows users to share computer programs with others while leaving their inner workings opaque, and verifiable computing allows users to outsource computations to others and receive short proofs that the computations have been executed as promised. Both of these technologies are also associated with a number of breakthroughs in the past decade. Section 2.1. Public Key Encryption Public key encryption is a technology that allows users to communicate through code without sharing secret information ahead of time. Say that one party, Alice, wants to send a private message to some other party, Bob, using a channel that may have eavesdroppers. For example, Alice might want to share a secret with Bob over email without anyone else, such as a government intelligence agency, being able to learn the secret too. The way to do this is to encrypt the message, meaning to encode it in a way that no one else can understand. The oldest class of encryption schemes known as symmetric key schemes, has been used for thousands of years. These schemes rely on a single shared piece of information, known as a secret key, and a mutually understood rule for translating unencrypted messages, or plain text, and encrypted messages, or ciphertext, into one another using that key. For example, in the simple Caesar cipher, the key was a short number, X, and the rule for translating plain text to ciphertext was to move each individual letter forward by X places in the alphabet. As an example, the key 1 would turn the message hello into IFMMP. The trouble with symmetric key schemes is that to be used, both parties must somehow settle on a secret key without any third parties learning it too. However, the difficulty of communicating secret information such as this is exactly the difficulty that encryption is meant to solve in the first place. Private key cryptography schemes therefore suffer from a chicken and egg problem, The problem is further exacerbated by the fact that secret keys cannot be reused without a very significant loss of security. There's a table here that is a summary of cryptographic technologies. We have columns for the technology, its date of origin, and a functional description. I'll read through the table. Public key encryption, originating in 1973, allows users to communicate through code without sharing secret information ahead of time. Digital signatures... 1979, allows users to identify messages senders. Cryptographic hash functions, also 1979, allows users to associate data with unique digital fingerprints. Trusted timestamping, 1991, allows users to timestamp pieces of data. Tamper-evident logs, 1979, but it's ambiguous, contains chronological records that cannot be inconspicuously edited. Replicated state machines, 1984. Replicate the provision of a service across multiple computers. Blockchains. 2008. 
replicated state machines that maintain tamper-evident logs. Permissionless blockchains, also 2008. Blockchains that allow any computer to participate in service provision. Decentralized applications, 1980, but it's ambiguous. Applications associated with an open-ended set of service providers, as in a permissionless blockchain. Consortium blockchains, 2012, though it's ambiguous. Blockchains that allow computers owned by multiple parties, but not any computer, to participate in service provision. Consortium-backed applications, ambiguous origin. Applications associated with multiple privileged service providers, as in a consortium blockchain. Cryptocurrencies, 2008. Digital currencies whose ownership is managed through a decentralized or consortium-backed application are also essential to the operation of permissionless blockchains. Zero-knowledge proofs, originating in 1985, allow users to prove mathematical statements to others without conveying additional information. ZK SNARKs, that's S-N-A-R-K, 2010, allow users to do the above succinctly and without back-and-forth interactions. Physical zero-knowledge proofs, origin 2012, though it's ambiguous, allow users to prove statements about physical objects to others without conveying additional information. Smart Property, 1994. Devices with electronic components that facilitate the transfer of their ownership. Smart Contracts, also 1994. Contracts whose execution is automated to a significant extent. Homomorphic Encryption, 1973. Allows users to perform certain computations on encrypted data. Outputs are also encrypted. Fully Homomorphic Encryption allows users to perform any computations on encrypted data. Outputs are also encrypted. Functional encryption, 2010, allows users to perform certain computations on encrypted data such that the outputs are not encrypted. Secure multi-party computation, 1982, allows users to run computations with inputs from multiple parties while allowing these parties to keep their own inputs secret. And secret sharing, 1979, allows users to split private data into shares, which can be recombined to retrieve the data. That's the end of that table. The paper moves on to the next technology to be explored in depth, public key cryptography. The text had just referred to the chicken and egg problem, where the private key schemes require the sharing of a private key, which must be kept secret. However, transmitting or sharing that secretly is the problem that encryption is designed to solve in the first place. The text continues... Public key cryptography, first developed in the 1970s, solves this problem. In a public key scheme, there is not a single key. Instead, each person in a network has a unique pair of keys, one known as their private key and one known as their public key. Although technical details need not concern us, these are the defining traits of a public key system. There is a setup algorithm that each party in the system can use to generate an almost certainly unique key pair. Each party in the system can announce their public key without revealing their private key. Public keys may also be used as digital pseudonyms. There is an encryption algorithm that can take a plain text message and the recipient's public key as inputs, and then produce an encoded message as an output. There is also a decryption algorithm that can take an encoded message and the recipient's private key and then produce the original message as an output. By applying these two algorithms in sequence, the sender and recipient can communicate through code. There's a footnote here that expresses this mathematically. I'll skip that part. Then the footnote says, alternatively, to express this by analogy, 
we can think of a user's public key as actually being a particular lock design, which others use to protect the messages they send to them, and the user's private key as the key that opens the lock. Back to the text. There is no practical algorithm that would allow anyone without the recipient's private key to decode the sender's message. As stated above, public key cryptography is not a new technology. After its initial development, or more precisely rediscovery by academics outside of the classified research community, the possibility of its widespread adoption was for many years considered a threat by government agencies, such as, within the United States, the NSA and FBI. These agencies argued that, without the ability to read intercepted messages, they would be much less able to counter criminal activity and other threats to security. They pursued several strategies to either slow the technology's adoption or outlaw variants that did not grant the government a backdoor, in quotes, to decrypt messages using its own special private keys. Ultimately, it became clear by the late 1990s that these agencies had lost the fight, and at least within the United States and European Union, all forms of public key cryptography are now perfectly legal to use. Until recently, though, the vast majority of messaging services still applied encryption in a way that allowed the service provider, and therefore government agencies, to access their users' unencrypted messages. Partially as a reaction to the 2013 Snowden leaks, this state of affairs has begun to change. It has become increasingly common for services to offer end-to-end encryption, which in practice refers to implementations of encrypted messaging that do not grant service providers viewing privileges. Over the course of just 2016, the number of end-to-end encryption users across all services may have increased by over 1 billion due largely to WhatsApp's decision to begin enabling the feature by default. In addition, a number of groups are working to develop practical end-to-end messaging services that can also reliably obscure each message's metadata, such as its recipient. If such projects are ultimately successful, then user privacy may increase even further. While even the use of perfectly implemented end-to-end encryption does not guarantee that one's messages will not be read by anyone other than the intended recipient, it does decrease the odds of successful eavesdropping. A third party might still read the messages if they gain access to the intended recipient's private key and intercept the message, if they trick the sender into associating the intended recipient with their own private key, if they manage to install malware on either the sender's or the recipient's device, and so on. In addition, there remains a risk that the application developer has misrepresented the security or method of encryption used in their application, as has sometimes occurred. Agencies in a number of countries now allege, controversially, that the information channels they rely on are increasingly going dark, in quotes. Section 2.2. Digital Signatures. A digital signature can be used to demonstrate that a given piece of data was sent by the owner of a particular key pair, see Section 2.1, and that it has not been modified since sending. Digital signatures work in the following way. Each party in the system agrees on a signing algorithm and a signature verifying algorithm. The signing algorithm takes a party's private key and a piece of data and outputs a code known as a signature. The signature verifying algorithm takes a party's public key, a piece of data and a signature and outputs yes if and only if the signature was generated from the data and the corresponding private key. For example, say that my key pair consists of private key X and public key Y. If I would like to tell you hello and demonstrate that I am the one telling you this, then I will first input hello and x into the signing algorithm to produce a signature. I will then send you a message consisting of the word hello followed by the signature. Finally, if you know my public key, 
you can apply the verifying algorithm to hello, why, and the signature, and thereby see that I am the one who signed the message. The use of digital signatures is currently ubiquitous online and, among many other applications, enables online commerce. For example, when you shop online, your computer verifies that you are in fact connected to Amazon.com and not a scammer after your credit card details. By checking a signature, it sends against a public key known to be associated with the website. In recent years, some countries have also moved towards assigning their citizens' public keys as a form of identification, so that individuals can prove their identities, access personally relevant government records, vote, and even sign legally binding contracts using digital signatures, ordinarily stored on highly protected ID cards. Estonia is the most notable case, with its citizens having issued hundreds of millions of signatures since the program's inception. Section 2.3. Cryptographic Hash Functions A cryptographic hash function encodes a piece of data as a code of some fixed length, known as a hash or digest. The function has the following properties. It is easy to check that a given piece of data produces a given hash. Pieces of data that are only slightly different will produce very different hashes. And it is impractically difficult to find a piece of data that will produce a given hash, or to find two pieces of data that produce identical hashes. In a sense, hashes act like digital fingerprints for pieces of data. In the same way that each human is associated with an almost certainly unique set of fingerprints, without these fingerprints providing any other information about the person, each piece of data can be associated with an almost certainly unique hash, without this hash providing any other information about the data. Arguably, hash functions are primarily important as a building block for other cryptographic technologies. We will now discuss a trio of such technologies trusted timestamping, tamper-evident logs, and blockchains. Section 2.4. Trusted timestamping. One interesting application area for cryptographic hash functions is trusted timestamping, or techniques for demonstrating that a given piece of data existed at a given time. In many cases, the task is significantly complicated by the user's desire to keep the data private at the time of its timestamping. For instance, Suppose that you have some research results that you are not ready to publish, but which you would like to be able to claim priority for. One simple solution is to take the hash of your data and then publish that hash to a newspaper or to a website that can be trusted to reliably log publication times. Later on, you can publish the actual research results, and by comparing its hash against the published hash, people will be able to verify for themselves that you had the results at the time of the hash's publication. As an example of this technique, the political organization WikiLeaks will sometimes post hashes of sensitive documents that they obtain to Twitter. If the hashes of eventually released documents do not match, as has happened in at least one case, then it will be clear that someone has modified the documents in the time since WikiLeaks advertised their existence. Here, Twitter is unintentionally filling the role of Time Stamping Authority, or TSA. It is being trusted in particular, both to produce authentic timestamps by publishing accurately dated tweets and to ensure that these timestamps will remain available into the indefinite future. More sophisticated timestamping protocols can also remove this second responsibility. For example, rather than storing the hashes it receives from users, the TSA can send back signed messages that contain both the hash and the time of its receipt. If the user would later like to convince others that the data existed at this time, then all they need to do is share the signed message along with the data. Further security can be provided by yet more sophisticated proposals, which replace a TSA with multiple trusted parties. 
Other use cases for trusted timestamping include preventing the forgery of documents and digital media. Often, the fact that a piece of data is known to predate a certain point in time can provide evidence that it is genuine. Investigators can trust that a time-stamped government document, for example, was not concocted after the fact to cover a corrupt official's tracks. Similarly, if a photograph claims to depict a secret meeting between two officials on a particular day, it will be much more credible if it is actually time-stamped for that day. As discussed in section 3.1.4, this latter use case may become much more important as artificial intelligence becomes increasingly efficient and effective at forging photographs and videos. As a final technical point, it can sometimes be useful to associate a large collection of data with a single timestamp. Naively, one simple way to accomplish this task is to apply a hash function to the full collection together. However, this method has a significant downside. In particular, using this method, it is impossible to demonstrate that a single piece of data in the collection was used to produce the timestamp without also sharing the rest of the collection, which may be undesirable from the standpoint of efficiency or privacy. A better method of timestamping a large collection of data at once is to use Merkle trees. Merkle trees are produced by hashing each piece of data individually, then repeatedly hashing pairs of hashes to form a tree structure. The hash that stands at the top of the resulting tree is known as the Merkle root. The Merkle root, if published, serves just as well as a digital fingerprint for the whole collection. If one would like to prove that an individual piece of data belongs to the timestamped collection though, then it is only necessary to share that individual piece and a relatively small portion of the Merkle tree, rather than it being necessary to share the other pieces of data as well. Merkle trees were first proposed in the late 1970s by Ralph Merkle, and have been used perhaps most often in the context of file hosting and sharing services that wish to assure users that files have not been altered from their most recent versions. Section 2.5. Tamper-Evident Logs A tamper-evident log is a chronological collection of records that is designed so that any alterations to records, once they are added, will be easily detectable. The terminology here is not entirely standard. However, as a technical note, tamper-evident logs can be classified as a particular variety of what are known as authenticated data structures. Tamper-evident logs are a highly valuable technology, insofar as trustworthy record-keeping plays a crucial role in political and economic life. One would hope, for example, that one's banking records, medical records, tax records, property records, and criminal records continue to be maintained properly. In many cases, the records in a log are objects of significant interest in their own right. Logs are often instrumentally useful, though, in allowing users to verify the integrity of more sophisticated processes or services. For example, a trusted log of deposits, withdrawals, and transfers can be used to determine the correct balance for a bank account, or to restore it to an earlier value if an error should occur. In general, many computer applications are associated with logs, typically referred to as transaction logs, that track how they respond to user inputs over time. Granting the parties maintaining such logs the ability to more easily detect attempts to tamper with them, and to more easily demonstrate to third parties that their logs have not been tampered with, can be a significant boon to security and trust. One design stands out as particularly effective, Although the proper terminology is contested, I will refer to it as a hash-linked log. Here, the log is subdivided into sequential blocks. Every time sufficiently many new records are collected, they are gathered into a new block and added to the sequence. Each block is divided into two sections, one that contains records and one that is known as a header. In turn, each header contains the date, 
the Merkle root of the records the block contains, and the hash of the previous header. Audio note, there are two figures here. The first shows a representation of a Merkle tree, and the second shows a representation of a hash-linked log. So for the Merkle tree, the caption reads, the top hash or Merkle root serves as a digital fingerprint for the blocks of data at the bottom. Here, proving that data block L1, which is on the lowest level of the tree where the blocks are most numerous, is consistent with the Merkle root, would require sharing just the block itself and the two hashes, hash01 and hash1. That is, the hashes that make it possible to trace a path up to the top of the tree. There is no need to share the other data blocks. And here we see the tree with the top hash at the top, branching out where each node becomes two nodes beneath it. And we see that in order to trace a path from the bottom to the top of the tree, one would only need to hash blocks or nodes with the blocks or nodes next to them, tracing a path back to the top of the tree and not requiring any knowledge of the other branches of the tree. And now figure two, the hash-linked log. Any edit to an individual record will produce an inconsistency with the Merkle root in the block's header. Furthermore, any edit to the block's header will produce an inconsistency with the hash pointer in the following block. And so here we see a series of snapshots of a particular record which has been arranged as a Merkle tree. The Merkle root is at the top in the header, along with the hash pointer from the previous snapshot, and then a snapshot is taken of that snapshot and fed forward to the next snapshot, such that neither the data contained within the Merkle tree or the headers themselves can be edited without producing inconsistencies in these hashes. On with the text. Suppose that Alice is maintaining such a log, say for an online payment service that Bob uses, and that she publishes the block headers as they are created. By including Merkle roots in the headers, Alice timestamps each block's records when she publishes its header. By including hash pointers in the headers, though, she also goes further and establishes a canonical sequence of records. It is now impractical, for instance, for Alice to remove a block from the log without producing an inconsistency with the headers that follow it. She also cannot simultaneously create two contradictory versions of a block, then inconspicuously swap one out for the other later on. As a further benefit of including hash pointers, Bob only really needs to know the most recent header to detect tampering. Any attempts by Alice to pass off an alternative sequence of headers as legitimate would be foiled by the sequence's obvious inconsistency with the one that Bob knows. Generally, we can understand hash-linked logs as achieving their security through use of linked timestamping, a class of timestamping techniques in which each timestamp references the one before it. Although the linked timestamping scheme described here dates back to a series of papers by Haber and Stornetta in the early 1990s, a number of governments and companies have just recently taken an interest in its applications. The aim is both to protect the integrity of their records and to provide greater assurances to their citizens or clients. The Estonian government, for instance, began in 2008 to use a linked timestamping service for logging alterations to some varieties of government documents. The research company Google DeepMind also initiated a project in 2017 to develop a tamper-evident logging system for use by the British National Health Service. Audio note, the excerpt included in the AI Safety Fundamentals core readings now skips over several sections, specifically those describing cryptocurrency and associated technologies, as well as smart contracts, smart property, zero-knowledge proofs, blockchains and distributed computing. The excerpt resumes at section 2.11, homomorphic encryption. Homomorphic encryption is a form of encryption that allows computations to be run on encrypted data, such that the outputs of the computations are encrypted as well. 
For instance, we say that an encryption scheme is homomorphic under addition if we can encrypt any two numbers, perform a certain operation on them, and then decrypt the result to return their sum. Efficient schemes that are homomorphic only under addition or only under multiplication have been known for a number of years. Today, the most widely applicable homomorphic encryption scheme is likely the Pallier encryption scheme, which is homomorphic under addition while also allowing for multiplication between encrypted inputs and unencrypted ones. This is sufficient to compute any linear function of encrypted data. A scheme is known as fully homomorphic if it allows any computable function to be computed on encrypted data. The first fully homomorphic scheme was invented in 2009 by Craig Gentry. Since this time, a number of superior alternatives have also been proposed. The basic appeal of fully homomorphic encryption is that it makes it possible to create applications in which service providers do not require access to clients' unencrypted data. Possible examples include cloud computing services that do not need to know the data they are being asked to compute on, online medical services that flag health concerns on the basis of individuals' DNA without needing to know their genetic data, and targeted advertising services that do not need to know the interests that users have indicated through their browsing behaviour. However, fully homomorphic encryption has not yet found significant use, as all known schemes are highly inefficient. The most efficient schemes discovered so far still result in many orders of magnitude blow-ups in the size of the encrypted data as it is operated on, and in the time the operations take to complete. For an example, in 2014, it was the case that even a well-optimized implementation running on a moderately powerful computer might be incapable of performing more than 50 multiplications per second, with addition being much less costly. This is actually a vast improvement over Gentry's original scheme, but still enormously slow. To a very rough approximation, fully homomorphically encrypted data can be regarded as about a billion times less efficient to compute on than unencrypted data. Some help is provided by somewhat homomorphic encryption schemes, developed concurrently, which offer significant but not decisive speed-ups at the cost of allowing for only a finite number of multiplications. Over time, further progress in discovering efficient algorithms and in developing more powerful computers could make fully or somewhat homomorphic encryption practical in a wide range of cases. For the moment, however, their application remains relatively narrow. In the following two sections, we consider an additional two technologies that allow computations to be run on private data. These are functional encryption and secure multi-party computation. Audio note, that's the end of the excerpt included in the AI Safety Fundamentals curriculum. You can read the rest of this paper at the link provided in the episode description. This was an audio version of A Tour of Emerging Cryptographic Technologies, What They Are and How They Could Matter, published in May 2021 by Ben Garfinkel, Centre for the Governance of AI, Future of Humanity Institute, University of Oxford.